So Michelle Perro here, a pediatrician for now 40 years. My work began to evolve from acute care, hospital work, um, emergency department work. I ran an emergency department. I've done uh, abuse work with sexual assault victims of children. My passion for environmental toxicants and the effect of genetic modification on children's health began in 2006. The level of disbelief marginalization and often outright hostility because I do this type yeah. of medicine, which is anti-pharmaceutical. Half American kids are sick or higher with a chronic condition. We spend the least on food, the most on healthcare and give the highest number of vaccines and have the sickest kids of any industrialized country. People, medicine and politics don't mix. Because these jabs they're not vaccines by the definition of what a vaccine is. Just Google what's a vaccine. It seems to be all about using the public as a guinea pig. Babies are being born pre-polluted, an average of 287 industrial chemicals. GMOs are safe, EMFs are safe. These are blatant falsehoods. Data is not some god, you can manipulate data to reflect your own intent. Um, I would say sick is the new normal. Sick is the new normal. Um, Dr. Perro, absolutely amazing to have you on Speaking Naturally. Um, we're really going to delve in to the things that people can do. First of all, understanding the problems that children in modern society face. They are the next generation. We have, we're living in a more and more industrialized world. And when you look at the combination of environmental factors that children are exposed to, and the tendency for denial by governments and industry that there's a serious problem with, with, with health, um, someone in your position, particularly because of the length of time that you've been practicing, um, gives us some pretty rare insights. So, um, I want to just kick off and if we're going to look at what's up with kids health today and how does how does that compare with 40 years ago how does it look are we are we genuinely facing a crisis in relation to the health of children today indeed rob i think this is a great place to start um i would say that if i could use any meme for how children are today um i would say sick is the new normal and um, sick has become so commonplace that uh, diseases that are indeed diseases have become normalized, such as chronic asthma, allergies, gut issues, neurologic issues from um, ADHD to autism spectrum disorder, ASD. Um, so these, and there are many others, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and every other disorder is almost becoming normalized because they're so commonplace. When you look comparatively over decades of children's health, for, based on personal experience and the literature, that tr every disorder has trended up. And some indeed are in epidemic proportions. As defined by the CDC of the US, the Center for Disease Control, an epidemic is when it affects more than one in 100 individuals. We have epidemics of autism, asthma, obesity, um, every skin disorder, which are all not benign, and autoimmunity. So these diseases were non-existence um, 30, 40 years ago, or so rare that we'd have all the young doctors come into our clinics to see a, a child with autism because it was so rare. So mm -hmm. this indeed has been is a changed landscape. 
Absolutely. And of course, um, what the detractors try and say is that, well, we now understand more about these conditions, so they're described more often. Is there any truth in that? Could a, at least a percentage of the change be due to diagnoses of, of, of new diseases that were unrecognized previously? Oh, that's my favorite chuckle, Rob. I just have a chuckle every time I hear that anybody's grandma can diagnose a kid on the spectrum. Um, they're quite easy. Obesity, hard to miss. Um, and if you look at photographs of children playing in the park in 1965 and today, well, if you can find children playing in the park, um, you'd be quite horrified because their body habitus has changed as well. And children look different. So it's called the physical exam, not so common in medical clinics anymore because practitioners have forgotten how to examine patients because we're so focused on electronic devices that kids don't even look the same anymore. So I can say um, the literature indeed does support, this is all not you know, my own particular um, health bent, but there is so much data which supports this is not that I'm a better diagnostician. So look, uh, and I agree, I, I, I've got to say, I, I often like to dig out school photographs from the 1960s and the 1970s, when, when actually kids, they knew about confectionery and naughty sweet things, but, but for some reason they appeared to be physically um, pretty strong and robust and, you know, um, yeah, they've become rounded and, you know, metabolically diseased for sure. Um, so when you start to look at causes and triggers, what does it look like? Is it, are there single factors? It seems that science is very good at looking at individual factors, the way we measure toxicity of environmental chemicals. Everything's individually, yet kids are exposed to this miasma, this huge complex of mixtures and different sources from chemicals to radiation sources. So when you start to look at causes and triggers and mediators, what does that look like to you? Yes, yeah, so indeed you are so spot on, Rob, because we as a Western practitioners, mainstream medicine, whatever you like to call it, conventional, traditional, I'll call it Western for the sake of this conversation, that yes, there's a, a cause and effect. And, and that's why I made the transition to holistic practice. I like to use integrative medicine, some say functional just so we clarify the terms. I'll just say integrative, because we look at the organism as a holobiont, as a, a holistic, multi-systems, biologically related um, complexity of a, of a soul encased in a body, and not just um, like a lung and a kidney and a brain. That these, these systems not only work together, they chat with each other through very complex networks. So, this, so mainstream medicine is based, the education is outdated, and it no longer pertains to what our children are facing today. The leading cause of children's demise today are environmental toxicants. And no one is looking at environmental toxicity, nor are they looking at the culmination of many toxic exposures at once. So for example, let's use Roundup, glyphosate-based herbicides, we look at one. When a child eats a non-organic food, there's at least six. And so we're not looking at the water, the food, the, the household dust, the air pollution, the electromagnetic frequencies that they're exposed to, et cetera. Very little data on the toxic soup. So we have a massive problem. We are not looking children as holistic organisms. We are not looking at the multitude of toxicants and we have an outdated medical system to care for them. So 
so really the the and we'll talk about solutions later but but all efforts to first of all identify potential causative triggering factors and try and find ways of of minimizing those i mean what what would be really interesting is for certain individuals and certain diseases is there a way of prioritizing those that are most important if you have a list of 20 or 30 things that you've found that may be a problem um, most people can't do 20 or 30 things in one go, but they can maybe do five or six. So is there a system clinically that you can help as a pediatrician guide parents and families to deal with the things that are likely to be the biggest problems? Absolutely. So um, uh, my list is three. I, I, I give parents no more than three things because otherwise there's immediate overwhelm and overload, particularly now. So if I had to prioritize my list, it would be food, water, air. How basic is that? It's what you eat, it's what you drink, it's what you breathe. And we have control over those three elements. There are things we can, can do on a variety of purses. It doesn't have to be just for the affluent because we've, in the US, we've done a very good job associating organics with elitism. That's another PR ploy, that this is an elitist um, you know, movement nothing elitist about it this is what your grandma did okay so that's where i hone in on and i it sounds so banal food is medicine every one of my patient encounters will begin as food is medicine if i don't get a person to change their diet away from the sad diet standard american diet which is not really a diet it's something else we can talk about that then i can't you know, proceed to all these very fancy, beautiful, herbal, whatever protocols, if I don't change a diet. No diet change, I tell people don't waste my time. Absolutely. So look, when you decide that food, medicine, and um, sorry, food, water, and air is, are the three most important things in your list are not pharmaceutical drugs. Um, that's not necessarily what you were taught at medical school. Um, it also is something that's now more controversial, ironically, than ever before, as we see more and more censorship. And um, you've seen the evolution of this sort of anti-science thread. I mean, you've been a champion of the issues around GMOs. Um, and I think the term anti-science has been used um, in relation to your views uh, more than once. Um, tell me how marginalization um, and even censorship around ideas that are viewed. I think in your area, it's anti-science. If you were a member of the public, it would be called a conspiracy theory. Um, how does that you know, manifest itself? How big is the problem? What are the solutions? How do we get around this? So Rob, this is a massive problem. And I think it's the, the one of the most fabulous PR campaigns on the part of industry to create marginalization is by creating those of us who question and challenge, since when was that a problem, um, is to be as anti-science. I don't ever say I'm anti-abortion, -abor anti-GMO, anti-anything. I say I'm pro-child. Um, so what I'm not anti-GMO, I am pro-science. I am pro, I'm a, um, I'm a critical thinker, I'm not a conspiracist. And I think to package us is in that way is a very convenient marketing ploy by industry to create um, doubt. When you create fear and doubt in patients' minds, clients, people's minds, then um, you ready begin to win them over. 
we as integrative practitioners, and particularly during this particular era in this past year or so, have been marginalized with our integrative tools, which have been such a vitamins of C and D. And I mean, I think it's horrific how we've been marginalized to kind of promote a single-minded agenda and to discredit those of us who practice holistically. There has been a campaign to discredit, censor, and create um, our group. And I don't even like to think of us as individuals. We should be the mainstream. The way we think is mainstream. Imagine conventional food should be organic food. So this is real. And I think it's nothing more than industry's um, PR department sitting around a very fancy table, well, in their homes now, um, drinking a Perrier and thinking of expensive marketing strategies and how to silence us. Because we definitely are a threat to pharma. I'm not opposed to pharma. I do not believe that's our first job in creating health. You have to restore the tools for the individual's body to heal itself. And for me, it's not necessarily a drug, although sometimes I do use drugs. There are certain drugs I've used over the years that have been very effective, certain antibiotics, for example. But those should be the exceptions, not the rule. And we have many other tools in our toolbox. So I say, Rob, it's been a massive fight. We in the GMO movement have experienced this forever. And that's why we birth GMO science, by the way, that we are science-based organization, non-biased science. And our whole uh, website, for example, there's, that's one small thing, is totally based on critical analysis of the science. And I, over, I was hard for me to believe that even personally I can share over the past 20 years that I've been doing this now, I become a better critic of science. Um, even literature that I would like to believe supports or is, is uh, regarding GMOs, I've been concerned and I've become a better reader of science. And many health practitioners read, when they read a scientific paper, read the abstract and the conclusion. They don't even read the details of the scientific paper. There's so much garbage out there. And one of the other great things about the pandemic, if there can be any great thing, is that we have now seen the flaws in science, that data is not some god. There, you can manipulate data to reflect your own intent. And I think people are beginning to understand that, that data can be massaged. Look, absolutely. I, I'm so good to hear you uh, discuss this, this problem with the way in which um, abstracts in the scientific literature have become like a PR tool. And um, it's fascinating when you see the general conclusions in an abstract, they may not stack with the results section of that paper at all. It's been twisted and manipulated, so statistical significance has been translated to mean biological, social significance, sometimes when it suits and other times when it doesn't, it's seem to be uh, irrelevant. So um, yeah, the, 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 uh, the money trail often tells a pretty big picture, conflicts of interest and all the rest of it. Now, let's get on to your um, subject of, of GMOs, which is um, I too have been involved in looking at the research um, on chemicals and GMOs for, for many, many years. And of course, they are two separate silos in terms of the way in which they're often researched. Um, the fascinating thing is you, you've already mentioned glyphosate. 
um, Roundup, the chemical, the herbicide, and Roundup, the world's number one herbicide. And of course, GMO crops that are Roundup ready are inexorably linked to the use of Roundup. So when you look at pesticides and you look at GMO crops, do you get some sense which is the bigger threat um, to, I, I, let's say, to children, to, to human health in the long run? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have looked at this, Rob, because I, I you know, when I, especially in my early adventures in this topic, I said, is it the GMO? Is it the pesticide? Is it both? And um, there aren't many science studies, scientific studies, there are just a few on GMOs themselves without the associated pesticides, because you don't need a, a genetically modified organism, a crop like corn or soy on its own, you eat it with its associated um, herbicides. Um, and sometimes pesticides, like in the case of BT, they're insecticides. Um, so GMO causes damage, that's clear. Not as much robust studies on it, but there's definite data. And I remind everyone, the very first study by Dr. Arpad Pusti, one of my heroes, on GMOs showed significant damage from a GMO potato that these rats ate. And mostly focused on intestine, what am I seeing, liver, we have a massive liver issue here in the US with um, sort of fatty liver um, and immune function. And we have an immunologic disaster facing American children. I keep saying American because indeed I'm more familiar, but in, don't be misled. This is a global issue. It's not just an American issue. We've transported our, oh, I was gonna say our poisons. I'll say our poisons globally. We've done a very good job here in the US. Um, so, but this combination research has shown of the GMO with its pesticide is much worse. And it affects not only the crop, which, ha- it, which is less robust, less nutritionally sound, it's affected the soil and it's affected the microbial um, uh, ecosystem that the plant lives in. We have totally killed the soil with our poisons. And then we eat that. And indeed, what that does to us, and there are many uh, ways that this happens, our own microbiota, we are mostly microbial, 10 to 1 microbes to human cells, more or less. And our, by eating this food-like industrial product, I don't even call it food anymore, it's a food-like in, industrial creation, we are killing off our own microbiota, which is measurable this is we can you can see the changes of before and after not just in terms of health we can actually look at it in someone's poop so this change in our food has changed our soil has changed our synonymous microbiota which looks like soil it's the human version of soil to be um, um, more predominant pathogens less nutrients um, less biodiversity, and overall, um, the leading cause, if you ask me, what if you said, Michelle, what is the leading cause of children's demise right now? It's, I'd say, the changes and alterations of a microbiota or a microbiome as, as synonymous terms, more or less. So that is the sort of the layout. And we understand quite well, there are other factors, epigenetics, and we can talk about other things. But if you say, what are you most concerned about? I was concerned about microbial alteration and microbial death. That's how profound it is, Rob. Yeah, I mean, obviously microbes are, are such an incredibly important part of, of life. Um, we, we're dealing with, with, 
one that is not a, a bacteria, but it's a virus. And uh, in many respects, um, I think what you would be arguing is that our resilience overall is becoming lower and lower. So, you know, we're now going to become increasingly more susceptible to microbes that become pathogens. Uh, you know, I think it's, that's an interesting delineation itself. We can't survive without microbes, but something isn't always a pathogen. I mean, even E. coli, most of the time in most of its strains, you know, you can get a, hundreds of different varieties of E. coli in, in an edible cheese, yet sometimes you will find some pathogenic strains. So this is the terrain of the, the milieu of the human being. That is changing. And um, my goodness, if you look at the industrialization program that continues to be set in the world, um, I can hear one of the solutions you're talking to is organic food. Not everyone can afford organic food. So let's, looking at this GMO pesticide combination, where do the solutions lie for families, including those who can't afford organic food? Yeah, um, it, boy, this is another conundrum. Um, you know, in the US, we subsidize conventional crops. And so um, convention, this is probably one of the worst things we've ever done. And so conventional crops like corn and soy are subsidized and way more affordable. If we were to subsidize organic farming, we could bring down the price of organic crops. Um, but it is changing. I have conversations with farmers here in the US. We have a Midwest, huge growing area. And they, I just spoke to one of my favorite farmers, Howard Vlieger, um, this past weekend. And I said, Howard, give me some good news because I need to hear some good news. He goes, Michelle, farmers are practical people. For years now, they're turning away from GMO crops because they see no value. Their crop output has diminished, their expenses have gone up, and their animals are sicker. The livestock that feed on this, these genetically modified crops increase pesticide use because they go hand in hand. So there, there is some good news out here. I don't want to be all doom and gloom. And more and more people know what GMOs are. And in surveys here in the US, 90% of people do not want to eat GMOs. And, and that's why we've had the, the fiercest battle by industry and agribusiness to not label here in the U.S. They don't want people to know what they're eating because people don't want to eat it. That's why they don't label that impossible burger, my favorite little GMO burger, which is now becoming a millennial favorite as we move toward more toward plant-based diets. It's not really a plant. It's a genetically modified creation made from genetically modified yeast um, so let's be clear what that little burger is with some a new design that your intestine is not familiar with. So I'd have to say that indeed it is changing. So what can people do is if you can't afford organic, you need to just avoid GMOs. So you can't, you know, avoid GMO crops. The main ones are corn, soy, canola should just not be eaten at all. Forget canola ever existed. Cotton is a heavily genetically modified crop. Well, you're not eating cotton, but you're eating cottonseed oil and young ladies are using cotton tampons. Please buy organic or wear pads or diva cups or anything. I always am preaching to women um, about non-organic products, feminine products. They're all made with GMO cotton that are sprayed pesticides in one of your most vascular parts of your body. I mean, it just, I, the outrage that I can feel over that. 
So avoid your GMO crops. Um, and, and then if you do have to buy conventional crops, you know, I go to still environmental working groups, a list of what to avoid that's heavily sprayed. And there are certain foods that are sprayed that you can wash the pesticides off. Certain ones you cannot, even though they're not genetically modified. So I'd send people to environmental working group or the Clean 15. I'm sure different sites have their list and how to, you must wash your produce. Um, and as long as you don't buy it genetically modified. There are certain things you must avoid completely. And we can touch upon this because GMOs have evolved. There's GMOs 1.0 and there's GMOs 2.0. And now we have gene edited foods like the innate potato. Um, which I want to talk about. to you about those. So to talk, talk to us about this, this sequence. Tell us about GMO 1, GM, GMO 2.0 and now gene editing because um, th there is no doubt that the youth are being targeted once again, new generation to say that the only way in which we can be food secure as a global population by 2050 is if we embrace this. This is part of the new green revolution. Does that make any sense to you? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, I, I again feel like we are victims of internet uh, propaganda. We are being manipulated by our screens and it's easy to do it because it's so glossy, it's so slick and the messages are so fine tuned that indeed you would believe it by looking on, at their glossy websites. Um, it's impressive. Um, regenerative agriculture, which is what I support, organic regenerative agriculture supports nutrition, supports the plants, and supports the bees, the birds, the environment, and carbon sequesters. It's just like win, 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 win all the way around. And so I couldn't talk enough about regenerative agriculture, organic regenerative agriculture, because industry is now stealing the, the term regen ag to refer to um, um, their green revolution. And that is disturbing. So now I say organic regenerative agriculture to just distinguish us from what's being co-opted by industry and the green revolution. So, you know, just so people are aware, and I think these are hard concepts. I was just speaking to my friend and colleague, Jeffrey Smith, about this. A lot of folks do not have education in genetics. And this is, these are hard concepts to wrap around what GMOs and gene editing. And I, re I feel like it's a lot of heavy science. So to simplify it, when you have a GMO, you take a trait from an organism, usually a bacteria that you want, such as resistance to an herbicide. You literally have to inject it and do these horrific things to a plant to get it to uptake this new quality. You have to put all sorts of chemicals on it and use a gene gun. And that was the first line of GMOs. But scientists wanted to create more technology, develop something called CRISPR, and what it is, is almost like a genetic scissors. And this is an oversimplification, Rob, but just for the basis understanding, where you actually can take out these genetic scissors and snip out the little sections you don't want. You repatch them together and life's good, right? Your piece of clothing rips while well, you cut out the part that's shredded and you put it back together, no fuss, no muss. Well, 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 hold on. You've created a new genetic sequence. And this new genetic sequence, then it can be transcribed to produce new proteins that our body has not seen before. And that's what can happen with gene editing. Now, this new technology of CRISPR, and I listen to uh, folks who know a lot more than I do, like my friend, 
Dr. Michael Antonio and Jim Thomas from ETC Group and so many others like your organization as well, Rob, and so many people who are um, talking about this. I'm not a researcher, I am a clinician. And that this, this um, CRISPR technology, despite your what industry says is not precise, not well studied, and no data on the human health effects, particularly on the microbiota of these new products. So we are unleashing this very profitable patented technology, hundreds of patents in the pipeline for this new technology because they make oodles of money on this. This is profit driven, Rob. Um, and we are eating products that we've never seen before. And what's happening, food intolerances up, food allergies up, food chronic gut issues up. You know, the leading drug sales in America are all related to the gut. They're, they're all acid blockers. Um, so see, so this is, I, that was super quick response about genetic modification and gene editing, but we've now entered a new chapter from where we started in 1996. Technology is whipping past the original GMOs to these gene edited uh, products. You know, I think the, the other thing that we fail to understand, it's, it's as if human beings have got this um, extraordinary state of understanding of the human genome and generally genomics um, and interactions between different species and their respective genomes. Um, and what we also know is that this idea of a, a non-local effect. So if you put in a specific edited sequence in part of the genome, what we used to think of as junk DNA that might be some distance away can be affected under certain circumstances. And so we are really running into this blind. So when it comes, you mentioned lack of safety studies. I mean, let, let's get to the, do you see any relationship between this um, dive into synthetic biology when it comes to COVID vaccines that are by definition experimental because they haven't completed phase three trials and they've received emergency authorization. So that these are synthetic genetic sequences that are either being introduced into a, a GMO chimp adenovirus, common cold virus, um, or they're being, they, they are essentially messenger RNA that's, that's giving instructions to um, the muscle cells to produce a specific um, antigen, the spike protein of, of um, SARS-CoV-2. Do you see any relationship between that trend in, if you like, experimental synthetic biology and what's happening with crops in relation to gene editing? You know, indeed I do. I do see the links. And I've been concerned about uh, a genetic engineering from many perspectives. It's a broad topic. Uh, we know in terms of our food supply, our crops, uh, genetic engineering in terms of microbes, in terms of gain of function. Um, here in the US, we've been at it since the 1930s. This is not a new concept. People don't know about it, but we've been experimenting with microbes and making them um, more harmful for decades. We have gain-of-function labs throughout the U.S. and Fort Detrick, and we have some in Georgia. We had some in Montana, and I think we've done some pretty good damage. We have it's in the scientific literature. So if anyone says, "Oh, here we go, conspiracy theory," I say, "Oh, wait a second. 
you don't need to believe my word or yours, then why don't you research this? So gain-of-function labs in the U.S., for example, and you can see what we've been doing, trying to make these organisms more lethal, right, for warfare. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. Humans make mistakes. Those things are not contained well. As if you think we have some 100% understanding of these microbes that are nanoparticles small, viruses are very small, and they can escape the best technology. So lab mistakes, humans make errors, and that's been documented in the science over and over again. So we've been up to that for decades. So this idea of novel is not novel. This novel coronavirus, we've been mucking around with that for years. So what is novel about it? They've been playing with coronaviruses for a long time. So it's not quite a novel thing. Um, and I don't mind sharing that I'm on the mindset that it's an, a genetically um, engineered organism based on, not based on what I've read, my research, and also what I see clinically, I said it doesn't act like a typical virus. It acts very uniquely. So if I put my physician's hat on and think, why does it act this way? And you know, and then I put my clinician's hat on to see, as pediatricians, we are specialists in viral diseases. We treat kids viruses. That's what we do a lot of our time. So I feel like clinically I'm a virologist. I've seen snotty noses for 40 years, right? That's indeed my specialty poopy diapers and snotty noses. Um, so I could say, wow, this virus short acts a lot different than most. Why is that? But anyway, I don't, so the point of our conversation is not so much get into that, but I want to get back to this question. When I saw, I don't like the word vaccines because these jabs, these medical um, injections, they're not vaccines by, by the definition of what a vaccine is. Just Google what's a vaccine. So these are genetically produced compounds that are made with messenger RNA, which is material that then tells your DNA what to transcribe. And there are pieces of the viral protein, these little spike proteins, which cause a lot of mischief, that are enveloped in a little fat casing, which makes them less able to be broken down because they can be broken down quite quickly. Some of the, the, um, these medical interventions have been created using adenoviruses. Um, and I think that's a the J&J vaccine, for example, I think also AstraZeneca okay, yeah. uh, used um, adenoviruses. And you say, well, adenoviruses are common uh, viral infections, you know, in kids. And well, wait a second, I just read a paper that showed how adenoviruses, this, these viral vectors can then alter DNA material. I just read a paper this past weekend about that, that, that this idea that they don't interact with your own DNA, I think is misguided and oversimplified, and I'm not so sure that's true. So here I am, not a conspiracist, I am a scientist, I'm a physician questioning the modes that we're trying to create vaccine safety. Back to your original point early in our conversation, to censor us from boosting immune function, and industrial food does not support immune function, by not boosting immune function, and by censoring us, you would just wanna create a vaccine, let's just call it vaccine for sake of language, this vaccine platform. So, you know, you can't help but feel like, why haven't we spoken about immune function support? There are so many ways to bolster immune function. Every global citizen, this is not an American issue, there's a global issue to know how to bolster immune function. Every parent should know how to do it. This is the topic of my first Zoom call when I do my thing, is supporting your child's immune function. 
The way you do that is through the microbiota. The way you do that is getting off GMOs and pesticides. You see, so it's all linked. I so back to that to the jab. Yeah. Um, I have concerns about that mRNA, mRNA material being able to intersperse, in, in intercalate into our DNA, and reprogram to produce different proteins. Um, hopefully, not that spike protein. Um, and indeed, that is my concern. Um, and um, yeah, Rob, I can't say that I am um, particularly happy with the way these events have gone down in the past year. Uh, look, absolutely. Coming back to the microbiome, there are a lot of companies out there who um, have developed different uh, um, tests, stool samples that can be analyzed to give you a, a flavor, um, if you can excuse the term, of the of your microbial communities in your gut um are there are these useful for the average person to understand if they've got a kid that has a consistent problem with with you know um bowel problems bloating digestive issues um is that something that is now useful as a tool you know um the what the most useful tool is the history and the exam and when I hear that history, honestly, I don't need a test. When I hear bloating, a uh, hard or soft stool, a reflux where the food comes up, child may not be growing. I take a look at the poop. The poop is completely abnormal. And, and there, there are different, we use a Bristol classification of what poop should look like. And you can see, you don't even need a sophisticated test. And some of these tests, they range from $99 US dollars to I've seen up to about 199 US dollars. And you can see, I, I can start treating it. However, I use those tools tests as adjuncts. Why do I do that? They give me more information. They are an adjunct to the care, not an absolute. I don't just put my hat on the lab test. The kid in front of me is my, my like laser sharp focus and we, how we treat the child. But I'll tell you where those labs are really helpful. You sometimes pick up surprises like parasitic infections, um, abnormal ratios of certain uh, microbes, more pathogens. I pick, and you can also pick up various markers in the poop, early markers of inflammation. There are some, for example, that's one's called calprotectin, and it shouldn't be very high. And I've seen some three-year-olds where it's off the charts. Those are early markers for colon cancer down the road. I have seen some kids with total undigested food on the on their stool analysis. So we're looking at the PCRs of organisms, but we're looking for undigested food. I know their digestive enzymes aren't working. I'm looking for the abnormal microbiota, and we're just really starting to understand how to interpret the various PCRs, which everyone knows that word these days, and the microbiota. And I'm looking at things like pH and blood and mucus and all the other um, things. So. I like those stool tests, and if I didn't have it, I could still treat. Amazing, amazing. So, look, many of the things you've talked about are pretty different to the way in which um, a conventionally trained physician is acting. Yes, you, you mentioned the physical exam is pretty much out the door because people are spending a lot of time staring at a computer screen, working out which, which drug to prescribe. You, you looked in detail at the medical curriculum, the way in which even today doctors are, are trained. Has it moved in any way with the times onto these sort of subjects? Um, if, if, you know, I want, if I could ask you two questions. First of all, 
How does it stand today? Secondly, if there are doctors, because we have a lot of doctors and practitioners who follow our work, what they, can they do to learn more reliably about practicing better, particularly in relation to children? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, I think awareness has increased because uh, physicians and practitioners themselves have more sick, so, sick children themselves. And so nothing like when it hits home and all of a sudden your kid's up all night screaming, um, kind of a little personal impact, it helps. But um, I have a lot of uh, friends' children in medical schools now. And anecdotally, I can tell you it's not changed much. They're still not offering nutrition as a major part of education. They're still focusing on a year of pharmacology. The way I had it, you know, 40 years ago, I got a year of pharmacology and two hours of nutrition. And it hasn't veered much away from there because of the ownership of big pharma of medical education. So we have to look at that. Um, and so I think uh, young uh, doctors here in the US come out in so much debt that the average medical stu student debt coming out of the US is $330,000 that they have to get into on the hamster wheel so quickly to begin paying off their debt. And these conversations we're talking about, Rob, take time. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that that's an excuse for not doing it and not educating because we can certainly use different types of practitioners in a medical practice. It doesn't have to be MD who does all the practice or teaching. It can be an MA, a medical assistant, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, um, a holistic nutritionist. There are so many others who can provide this crucial education. It doesn't have to be the top person. You can, you can restructure a tiered system you know, where different people can provide different things. We can, we can reshape medical education. Who says you should have one visit per patient? You can do group visits with 10 or 20 people who all have a two-month-old. And you can cover 20 of them. It's the same questions when you have a two-month-old, sleep, eating, and poop. So, yeah. you know, you don't have to have all these individualized appointments. It can be done differently where we can maximize and if, if cost is a concern. So I don't think the needle is moving enough. And now so many of us, like myself, I had to go back and retrain myself. It's, it's, a, it's a daunting task to go back and re-educate yourself when you put so much time and effort and money into this medical education. But there are institutions and ways to do it. There are programs online. There are functional medicine courses. There you can be, go to a naturopathic school. You can get herbal um, supplemental education, homeopathic education. There are so many of us who are starting to do this. And listening to programs like yours, Rob, is where you're starting to pick up pieces. Now, this is a piecemeal way to do it, you know, these conversations. I don't think it's structured enough. You need some structured formal education. But there are groups that I'm involved with, like on the National Association for Environmental Medicine, where we have tons on environmental health topics. But still, I think, in my perfect world, there would be a program for people who've completed medical education, let's say MDs, because we have the least knowledge of holistic health, and create supplemental programs that should be part of your licensing. So every year, when I, every two years I have to relicense, we should have uh, supplemental materials and tests that we have to take on supplemental education that we didn't get. Nutrition would be the first one. It's the glaring hole yeah. in our educational talk as an MD. So there's not enough 
medical education must be restructured. You can go, people who are already in the business can read, of course, and go back to things like Institute of Functional Medicine or wherever to get their education. There are programs you can do and or you can start picking the material. You're already a practitioner. Hearing these kind of seminars like we're doing now will prompt you on how you dig deeper. We've got it in the UK, uh, one of the longest standing um, integrative medicine holistic doctors is Dr. Rosie Daniel. You may have heard of her. Rosie headed up the Bristol Cancer Care Center, was obviously jumped on from great heights before and has always risen time and time again. And, and um, at the phase of life she is, she's still going absolutely flat out. In fact, it was last Friday we had the launch of a health and well-being, an e-learning platform through a health and well-being trust, which has been set up specifically as a charity. So it's independent of any of the money. Um, and um, basically, it is, it is a very sophisticated e-learning platform where the trust essentially selects the, the experts, the doctors, the practitioners, the clinicians to offer online training. And that will be um, primarily for, for health practitioners. So again, I think this is the frustration that many people at your stage of your career where you can speak out, you know, you're looking for new ways of doing it. Of course, you, you've got your website, which is, can you just say a few words? Is that going to be primarily for families and their children, or is it also for clinicians and practitioners? So, um, yes, thank you, Rob. Before I say that, I would have to say one of my favorite integrative practitioners is in the UK, Dr. Sarah Myhill. Yeah. And I've read her books, and I think, my goodness, she is so spot on. Um, and um, I'm like a devotee. I, I read all her stuff. So yeah, you have to keep reading. You know, we have to read and keep educating ourselves. So why drmichelleperro.com? Um, so why is because after everything I've done, academic, scientific stuff, all I'm going back to parents, and this will be for parents. And what I'm trying to do is. Um, my cat is scratching at the door. Um, educate parents specifically on integrative pediatrics on what they're not hearing in the practitioner's office. And it's going to be focused topics where people can ask me questions and I will answer them on a live Zoom call for an hour. <clears throat> they can consult with me later on more specific questions and give them access to an integrative provider because finding folks like me here in the U.S. is very difficult. Finding people who are covered by insurance is difficult. So parents wind up spending two costs for their insurance plans and then for their integrative providers. This is craziness. And we're going to bankrupt families. I don't want to bankrupt you on my services. I want you to buy the organic food. So it will be a membership program. And I'm going back directly. And I usually say moms. And then I went to parents because we've missed this opportunity to educate the dads. What have we done? And most of the people I see in clinic are women. And that too, Rob, has to change. This idea that it's a mom's movement, and that's where I've been focused too. I have whole chapters dedicated to moms in my book. It's a missed opportunity. And I'm inviting dads. And now when I see a family, I ask the dad to be there. This is not just a mom conversation. It's a parent. Whichever parent it looks like, two dads, three moms. I mean, whatever the family is made of, I don't care, whoever is the parent. I haven't heard of dads across America, I've heard of mums across America. Yes, 
Um, so this is why I'm doing it. And um, I just hope to be able to offer something to families who have questions and can't get them answered affordably and give them the down low. Because as you can hear, I'm nothing to hide. I've been at this a long time. I'm fully transparent. I say what I know and I say what I don't know because there's still lots of things, Rob, that we just don't know. And I'm all open for more studies. Um, always open for quality research. I support it. So, I mean, the, the extraordinary thing we see about um, environmentally mediated disease in children or anywhere else in society is that it, the burden of it, most of it, occurs amongst the people who are most deprived. So this is where we come back. So I really love you. I, I want to also ask you about your ear tubes. But before we do that, um, um, and, and, and also just to talk briefly about, you know, how much, you know, tech and technology interferes with children's health, given the young developing brain and everything else. But, but um, if you can just deal with this sort of health inequalities, this disproportionate impact on the people who have the least who are also, you know, struggle necessarily to, um, to, to buy organic food, for example, more likely to go for a pill for an ill, um, what might be the most important messages to deal with that incredible injustice and inequality in, in health? Um, there, Rob, you know, we, I, it's too bad we kind of touched on this in the end because um, the underserved uh, brown and black folks um, have some of the worst health uh, markers, worst health effects, some of the worst hit by COVID, um, et cetera, et cetera. And there's huge uh, food deserts and areas where they reside. They have, don't have access to forget organic. How about just real, some food? And they live in where just gas stations providing their packaged food process, whatever that is. Um, so that is a real issue. And I even thought about that, you know, it's like, well, how do we get those folks to step up? And we are actually trying, a group of us here in California, a Children's Environmental Bill of Rights is what we are now working on in the state of California, a group of us. We are mostly women um, from various organizations, from Children's Health Environmental Network to FACTS, Families Against Chemical Toxics, from GMO Science, these are some of the organizations we're coalescing to create this Bill of Rights for kids that, there, that the recognition that environmental health is the health of children, it affects all children, it affects poverty, children of low income and children of color disproportionately, and we need to protect our children. There are groups I'm involved with, Protect Nature Now. I want to create um, a movement, Protect Babies Now, that these kids, through this Bill of Rights, is what we're after. That we have to go at the legislative level to create real change at, le at the legislative, um, uh, with law, to that children have rights. Um, and so not just corporations. Corporations have rights, well, children should have rights. Mm -hmm. And we need to protect those individuals. They don't have access. It is not fair. It's a, not an equal playing ground. Even on my own website that I'm starting, it's gonna be a membership. If someone emails me and says, I wanna get on, but I can't afford it, you've got it. I am not withholding anyone who needs to listen from what I do. Money is not a factor. And I, it should never be a factor in getting access to integrative care, to, to getting holistic care, or I should even say now, real care. So um, that's, that is uh, something that's always on my mind, Rob. 
So, I mean, it's education as well, isn't it? The, the, the difficulty is that we have governments that have been dishing out sort of public health messages around nutrition and lifestyle um, for 40 years, as long as you've practiced important elements of it, you know, around carbohydrates and fats and um, processing of foods have been, have been wrong, just plain wrong. And then so many different sources of risk that kids are exposed to are ignored. And one of those now is, I mean, it's very interesting how the 5G debate now is being applied to anything to do with RF frequencies. You're wearing the ear tubes. Tell me why you're wearing ear tubes and what kind of risk you think modern tech is to young children. Okay, so um, an one of the, I think the biggest, um, the, the, the biggest victim, the largest group of victims to the pandemic are children in terms of not going to school and being on their devices. I think of so many health issues that have emerged and so many holes in our health system and so many holes in our food system have all been ripped open during the pandemic, maybe for a good thing. It's like opening up the abscess, let the pus drain. Well, children on their devices, I please understand, I don't know why people don't get this. Children are not many adults. Their physiology is unique. They are uniquely affected by electromagnetic frequencies. As a matter of fact, when I get off of this, of this conversation today, I'm writing a letter because we're battling telecom taking over in the state of California. And legislators who don't serve constituents, they serve their lobbyists here in America. That seems to be our, our uh, political cry. We're reminding them, indeed, they have voters and constituents, and I'm about to launch a serious letter because it's in our it's in our um, in our state senate right now. Literally this week, it's being voted on. Telecom is coming in to put up their small cell towers so that 5G, which is not one step up of, among a past 4G, and this type of frequency of radiation is able to penetrate the thin cortical skulls of children and affect their brain architecture and brain function and their neurochemicals. The literature is clear in its plain. This is the same obfuscation of truth that the telecom industry has put as, as the agribusiness industry. GMOs are safe, EMFs are safe. These are blatant falsehoods that is not true and the literature supports it. Personally, I think all children should be on these air tube devices. Uh, these are headphones that are designed to decrease my exposure to EMFs. As you see, I'm sitting away from my computer. I have a laptop. I also have um, a keyboard that I use so my hands are not sitting on, the, on, the, on my laptop where I'm consumed because I'm in front of my computer, oh, just about all day. And I have a protective case on my cell phone. I have not upgraded my cell phone to 5G. This is a very old one. People say, get a new phone. I said, absolutely not. Um, and so I am very wary of this safeguarding. I think there are two major crises affecting children's health, be clear. Environmental toxicants, which include, well, EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, and 5G. And it's hard for me to pinpoint which is the worst evil because I forever thought it was our food. And I'm shifting thinking it could be the 5G that will affect us in a way. And medical professionals are not trained to recognize the symptoms of electromagnetic frequency toxicity. 
Um, they don't know how to diagnose it and they don't know how to treat it. And once we have 5G in place, we cannot shield ourselves. Every 15 feet, there will be some little pretend birdhouse sending our 5G information, not to even to mention their privacy issues. But I'm, I'm focused on health and I'm thinking, what are we doing to our children? And if you want to look at our reproductive health, look at sperm health, look at the recent literature by Dr. Swan, Shauna Swan, on uh, men's reproductive health, it is shocking. So if that isn't enough of a wake-up call, I don't know what is. So um, on that very happy note, I... <laughs> but it's a, it's a shocker. I mean, what, one, one of the things that, that links all of this together is that they are, there's this tendency to now blindly accept new technologies that are untested, whether we're looking at saying yes to 5G, which is initially just a rollout of more 4G, but then the Miller wave frequencies are going to be added to it with no experimentation. We've seen COVID vaccines coming out as experimental vaccines. We see, uh, you know, gene editing going out with very little testing. CRISPR technology hasn't been well tested. So this is the kind of this new world order that, that is definitely happening to us now. A few years back, it was called a conspiracy theory. It seems to be all about using the public as a guinea pig and children in that, you know, miasma are the most sensitive members and they are our next generation. So um, I was going to ask you, what are your three most important pieces of information to end on? And I know that they're going to be um, food, uh, water and air. Um, so, Michelle, um, is there anything else? Are there another three things? This is all about take homes and particularly pearls, because you did say that clinician pearls is what you're all about. Yes, pediatric pearls. So I would say, yes, those are my top three that people can change today, but I actually have another. Mm -hmm. And I can tell that this is a real bug in the side of industry because they're trying to get rid of it. And that is municipality control, local control of local communities. So what does that mean? Grassroots activism. That means that every citizen can become an activist. Every citizen can become their own scientist. Every citizen can become their own legislator. And getting involved, whether you're in the UK or you're in the, wherever you are, Sweden or here in the US, that still municipalities have control. And so you need to become involved in your local government and what's going on. Find out about your local EMF laws. Maybe your local town, our town's only 10,000 people, can ban plastics or 5G or whatever, or, or we did a roundup ban in our own town. So there, and that is what, in here in America, for example, industry is battling. They're trying to remove municipality control because that's still an area they have not succeeded. That's what we're fighting right now in California in our, in our legislature. Really important battle to, to fight. Merkel in Germany has just decided to banish municipal powers and to apply federal powers. Well, there you go, because they're recognizing, I think, you know, all these guys are chatting behind the scenes, you know, Merkel and everyone's having a little conversation, um, you know, um, et cetera. But I'd say we have to take our power back. And that's, again, the main focus of my upcoming website is empowering parents to take back the health of their children, to take back the health of your own community. And, and when you unite amongst yourselves, you're stronger. 
And your local government officials are more fearful when you're not just one, but maybe you're 51. These groups, so you have to coalesce and form a stronger voice. This is why industry's been fighting unions. We're still fighting them because when people organize, they get scared. We have more power in groups and organizing. Even ours, our natural health organizations align. Here we are, an American, you know, pediatrician talking to amazing, you know, natural health practitioners in the UK, we're aligning, you see, and this is what they don't want to happen by keeping us separate, keeping us masked. But internet is our friend here, I know, because we can have these global conversations. So I say the more we educate ourselves and align and change our thinking to positive and, and steer your own ship, I think we regain our power and our health because there is power in positive thinking. I don't want to sound like some new age guru. I'm not. But your brain shapes your gut. Your gut shapes your brain. And when you think that way, your health will change. When you say, I do have control. I am not fearful. I am not a victim of my government, of a virus, of, of tyranny, of medical tyranny, and tyranny of medical mandates. I'm not a victim. We will unite in my school and my community. So this is what we're talking about here. And I would end on that positive note that we can do something. Michelle, that's fantastically inspiring. It's exactly what we do at ANH. It's all about bottom up. It's all about empowerment. It's all about change. And um, yeah, to, to emerge from that fear that um, is being essentially imposed on us. And it's, it's a process we go through in our, on our brains and it is voluntary. So thank you for incredible words of inspiration. Um, so fantastic to finally connect with you. Um, and thank you so much for your time. So um, michellepero.com is going to be the new website or? Yes, it will be up, I think, July 1st, drmichellepero.com. And Rob, I thank you for what you guys are doing, your organization internationally here in the U.S. I am a fan. I support it. Um, and I think this is how we do it, Rob. So thank you as well. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you.